Thank you for tuning in to Cobblestone Community Church today. We hope this message blesses you. If you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com. Now here's the message. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions today, and I was told at 9 a.m. that I was yelling. So if you feel like I'm yelling, it's because you ever have that moment where your ears feel clogged and you can hear your own voice? The entire first service. So I was yelling. I just didn't know it. Uh, so welcome to Cobblestone. My name's Andrew. I do want to invite you into a very important thing that we're doing. We are in a reading plan. And you're like, that sounds fun. It is. If you don't do it out of religious duty, but out of delight and love, I want to know God. And God has actually told us a lot about himself in this book. And so if you need a Bible, there's some along these walls. You can take one home if you don't have one. If you have 17 Bibles at your house, don't take our Bible. We're in the book of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles actually reiterates a lot of information from, Chronicles, or from Kings and from Samuel. And so you start to read it and you're like, I've heard this before. And really the first, first to nine chapters, which we're going to talk about today, is a genealogy. Woo! So I thought, let's just open it up, read it real slow, and then we'll go home. Amen? No. But we are talking about genealogies. And I just, has anybody ever actually read a genealogy? Okay. All right. You're like, I'll grit my teeth. Typically what happens is we read the first few lines, and we're like, well, I know that name. Doing good. I'm such a Bible scholar. Oh, I know that name. And then you get to like Elihud of LSR. Blah, blah, and you can't say it, and you're like, and we're done. I'm just going to go to the end. That's usually how we read gene genealogies. And so when I read a genealogy, though, these, I've done it that way, but I've started to really like, okay, God, why did you put this in here? And why did you want me to know these names? Why did this, why did this matter? And so I've affectionately named today, genealogies are boring, but Jesus isn't, okay? That's today. So we're going to read some genealogies, we're going to read some names that are hard to pronounce, but we're ultimately going to end on Jesus and his genealogy, and then how that applies to you, because you have one, correct? You have a genealogy. You have a family line. In fact, many of you, anybody done Ancestry.com or anything like the same? I was given one. I did not want to spit in a little jar that you have to spit in, and I was not going to send my DNA across the globe. So, that's me. So here's what I've realized about genealogies, why we don't like them. You want to know why? They're not about us, which is usually how we read the Bible. Am I right? You read the Bible, and you go, when is this going to get about me? You read the Bible, and you go, that's great. What about me? I have good news for you. The world is not about you. I also have even better news. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not even about the people in the Bible. The Bible is God's story. The Bible is God's book. In the beginning was God. And in the end will be God. And forever that way into eternity was, and ever that way into eternity will be God, right? Even the people's names we will read, they're in there because they're attached to a covenant that God made. If they didn't agree with God. So Abraham, by faith, believed God. This is why it's credited to him, because he had faith in what God said. And so what I want to do is I, I do want to get to the point where we go, okay, what's your baggage with your family line? I got some. You got any? You got any dark points? Anybody have a bad dad, bad earthly father? Anybody have a, a grandfather that was like moonshining? I did. 
And you're like, you're a pastor. Well, <laughs> I got a broken past. Jesus makes everything new. So I want to do is I want to elevate God, but before we do that, we're going to get into First Chronicles, and I think one of the best tools right now that I've found is a thing called Bible Projects. It's on YouTube. They are, they are kind of summaries of Bible books. If you're a Bible nerd like I am, I just enjoy watching them because I like quick, succinct like, overviews of things. So in six minutes or less, you can get an overview of every book of the Bible, bibleproject.com, Bible Project on YouTube. Let's watch this for just a few minutes and get an overview of First Chronicles. The books of First and Second Chronicles. While they're two separate books in our Bibles, that division is not original. Due to scroll lengths, the book was divided in two, but it was written as one book with one coherent storyline. Now, in our English Bibles, Chronicles comes after the books of Samuel and Kings, and most of Chronicles is actually repeat content from those books. And so most modern readers, when they come to Chronicles, they think, wait a minute, I just read all of this, and so they skip it. And that's a shame, because this book is really unique and important in the Bible. In the traditional Jewish ordering of the Bible, Chronicles is actually the last book because it summarizes all of the Jewish scriptures. The first word in the book is Adam, the first character at the beginning of the story, and then the last paragraph announces the return of Israel from exile. Now, we don't know who wrote this book, but we can tell from details within it, it was produced by somebody who lived a couple hundred years after the Israelites returned from the Babylonian exile. Now, for this author, Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt some time ago, and as we learned from Ezra and Nehemiah, things were not going well. The great prophetic hope was that the city and the temple would be rebuilt, that God would come to live among his people, the messianic king would come, and all the nations would come live under his peaceful rule, and none of that has happened. And so the author of Chronicles has reshaped these stories of David and Solomon and the kings of the past in order to provide a message of hope for the future. And we'll see that he's designed this book to emphasize two clear themes. First, the hope of the coming messianic king, and second, the hope for a new temple. Let's just dive in and you'll see these themes all over the book. First Chronicles begins with nine chapters of genealogies, long lists of names. And you'll read these and think that this is kind of boring, and that may be true for you, but actually they're very, very important. The author is summarizing here the whole storyline of the Old Testament by naming all of the key characters in the stories. And as he does so, he shapes the genealogies to emphasize two key lineages. First is the line of the promised messianic king. So lots of space is dedicated to tracing the line of Judah that led all the way to King David to whom the messianic promise was given. And then from David, the author traces that line up into his own day. The other family line that receives lots of attention here is that of the priesthood, the descendants of Aaron, who, of course, served in the temple. And so right from the start, you can see the two main themes, the author's hope of the Messiah coming to build a new temple, and it's rooted in these ancient genealogies. Standing? Better? We're going to watch the rest of that later. I stopped it there. We have time restraints, guys. So 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. It starts off with names. We're only going to read the first, like, four verses. We'll stop for a second and talk about it. And I, I'm actually going to skip a large chunk of the names. But please, go home later and read all the names. Okay. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I think I said that right. You say it however you want. They're hard to pronounce. 
Now, normally when we read the Bible, we immediately put biblical names and characters like way up high on a pedestal, do we not? They're in the Bible for a reason, but here's what I've come to understand as I've studied this. I think Adam actually had a way closer life to you than you think. Yes, he was the first man. Yes, he saw God. Yes, he got to walk in a garden, but he got kicked out, and you know what he spent his time doing? Farming, bickering with Eve, worrying about his kids, looking for better land, hoping and dreaming in all of these things. Don't you think? And all of these names are real people, real people. This is the Bible's rooted in history. And that's why it's so important when we read genealogies that we actually read them, because if you follow them, you can actually follow the whole storyline of the Bible. These names, notice the heading. The headings weren't in there when they originally wrote it, but the, the, the transcribers, the translators of the Bible put them in, and they're really important. It says, from Adam to Abraham. Does it say that in your Bible? Now, Adam's the first man, and Adam sins, and then humanity's plunged into sin, but God says a very important thing to him in the garden. He says, I will crush the head of the serpent and he will strike my heel. He says to Adam, I am going to deal with what has ruined you. The first promise of the gospel. And then you go all the way to Father Abraham, who had many sons. And God comes to this man, Abram, in verse 28, and it says, the sons of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael. These are their genealogies. So Father Abraham had many sons and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left. Yeah, that is so much beautiful, more beautiful than that. God comes to Abraham, and he says to him, not only am I going to bless you, I'm going to bless the whole earth through you. How is God going to bless the whole earth through someone that comes through Abraham and someone that ultimately comes from Adam? So Adam is connected to Abraham, and Abraham is connected to 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. These are the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. These 12 names are the 12 tribes of Israel. So when we talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these are the names that come after them as the lineage, as the heritage, as the genealogy of those who are walking in faith in the promises of God. When you hear Paul talk about being a Hebrew of Hebrews in the New Testament, you know, he, I'm, a, I'm a Benjamite. I come from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm, I'm a better Hebrew than all of you. He's claiming his heritage, and it goes way back. This is why I asked if any of you have done that. Ancestry.com. We're fascinated by this. Where did I come from? Anybody done a family tree? You try to go back as far as you can. Usually you start to get a little older. You're like, I want to know my family line. I want to know who, where they came from. Did they get on a boat from Europe? Who are they? We know the biblical writers, who they are, and it doesn't stop there. In 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, these are the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. So you have the descendants of David. Every key figure of the Bible, you can track who was born to whom, who is married to whom, when they lived, and that's because the Bible is not lacking detail. It actually is actually you're being shown off right now on the earth, and I, this is why. Biblical archaeology right now should make you just like, it is true. Every time they dig up a fragment or a papyrus, it confirms over and over again that this 
is more valid than, than ever. Every pottery jar that's got an engraving on it matches up with the time of David and him testifying that God is good, God is real, he has promised. And what did God promise to David? God promised David that one in his line would sit on his throne forever. Forever. So God promises Adam, I'll crush the sin and the death that you brought. God promises Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole earth for you. God promises David, one of your line will sit on your throne forever. Forever's a long time, right? Who fits all of those things? Now, you're in church, so just say Jesus. Jesus does. Jesus fits all of those things. But I want to hit that point more. These are real people that are historical figures that you can actually study and see where they came from, where they were, where they lived, and the times and of their lives. I can do the same with you. I can do the same with them. Everybody's got a genealogy. Some of you, if we sat down and I was like, do you like your family line? You'd be like, not so much. Bunch of scumbags. Some of you, though, you'd be like, my family were amazing. I loved them. Everybody's got a genealogy. Even Jesus has a genealogy. So open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is going to continue this genealogy because he wants to prove the tie of Jesus to David, to Abraham, ultimately to Adam. So if Adam is the first man that ruins and steeps the world into sin, Jesus is the last man who will free us from it. And in Matthew chapter 1, he starts off with the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So if you want to track how Jesus came into the world, who his dad's dad, 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 dad's was, you can. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Why would Matthew connect Jesus to David and Abraham? Because there was promises made, and God is faithful to his promises. And so as you look at this, it, it continues in verse 15. And I cut off a lot of names just to save you from reading them all. But it says, And Iliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathon, and Mathon, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. If you're a Bible nerd, you can start looking into the number 14 and kind of wonder, what's going to happen in 14 more generations? I don't know. But I'm excited to find out. And so this family line shows you God promised to Abraham. God promised to David. God promised to Adam. God promised to Mary through an angel. I'm going to do a work. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And so with all genealogies, you can tell when someone lived and someone died and when someone existed and someone didn't. Here's your deep, deep question of the day. Before we talk about your genealogy, before I tell you that Jesus can change anything in your family line, I want to talk about God. Is that okay? I want to get God big in our view. When did, when did God begin? When did Jesus begin? And by definition, you're like, it means he's uncreated, has no beginning, has no end. I'm glad you know that. But what I would like to instill is that in your heart. I want us to feel this. 
Because if you make God small, what happens is, if you had a crummy earthly father, he was abusive, he hit you, he was a drunk, what you start to do is, that defines my life. That defines me. But that's not true, biblically. And by the word of the Lord, that can be broken today. So maybe some of you are like, no, 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 it's not my past. I love my family. It's, you don't even know the sin that I've done. You don't even know where I was last night, Andrew. I, stu- I barely stumbled in here. I'm dirty. And you're going, well, that defines me more than the word of God. And so I want to make God so big that you'll take him at his word. Because he is that big. Because he is that holy. He does have all that power. He is mighty to save. And so what, I'll just, we'll walk it through. In Genesis chapter one, it says, in the beginning was God. God was there. God was there. Nothing else was there, only God. The uncreated, eternal, holy, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. That God was there. And the Bible makes clear that it was the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit enjoying relationship with each other, and I'm not going to try to explain the Trinity to you right now, the one who is three but is one. God is there. And so when did he begin? Who brought God into existence? And you're like, why are you at, I, I know he doesn't, I want you to go where scripture begs you to go. Scripture's begging you the question, when did he begin? Does he have an end? To think deep. And if you don't think deep, you think shallow. And if you think shallow, then you think salvation is so much less and so much more power is available than we know. So do this little exercise with me. If God is from eternity past, start going that way from Genesis, which is the opposite direction from the moment he created all things. Go a million years. Is God there? Let's go... A billion years. Is God there? Trillion? Sextillion? Quadrillion? I don't know the numbers. I'm running out. Let's go 999 billions, you know, that way. Is God there? So that means you and I right now are actually closer to Genesis 1 than we are to any idea of God beginning. Which means the God that we serve should boggle our minds, should put us in awe, should make us so rooted in, if he says you're his, what do I have to fear? If that God who forever chose me to lavish his love on me, to die for me on a cross, is now calling me today, what do I, why would I say no? Even Jesus himself is going to claim this. And we miss it sometimes, and we're like, did he? He did. In John 17, 24, Jesus is praying a prayer, and he's actually praying for you and me. And he says, I believe one of the most beautiful, profound things about who he is. Father, I desire that they also, hello, also's, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Now hear this. Because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. This is Jesus praying, talking, talking to his father, and he claims a very, really cool thing. Before the foundation of the earth, before there was anything, grass, birds, you, anything, he says, Father, you've loved me 
before the foundation of all things. Wow, right? Which puts Jesus not of the earth. Which puts Jesus as God in the flesh. Which puts Jesus as more powerful than we sometimes give him credit for. And if that Jesus is the eternal, holy, coexistent one with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit, when Jesus shows up and says, come to me if you're weary, why are you holding back from him? Why are you letting your past with your family or the sin of your present keep you from the God who loves you? He was uncreated. He's always been. He's God. Now, the thing is, I don't think we're used to dealing with beings that don't end. Like, this meeting will hopefully end, right? You have dates, you go on dates, they end. Movies, they end. Songs, end. God doesn't end. God is eternal. God is forever. God is always, and that's why when we sing about his steadfast love, it's been going on for as many I can go back that way as far as you can and go that way as far as you can. And if we're in the love of God, that's forever. And I can't get my mind around it. Do you understand it? Me either. There's never been a time when God was not. He's always been. He is called the ancient of days for a reason. Can you join me in this all? Like I, I want you to go here with me in your heart. I want you to be like, I can't fathom him. He is amazing. Wow! Should be coming out of our hearts after this. I'm going to try to produce it. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Everlasting that way? Everlasting that way. He's God. Over your life, over Abraham's life, over Isaac's life, over all the tribe's life, over David's life, over the prophet's life, over us. He is God. And I want you to feel that because I think what, what, what happens is we start to think that we understand God. When I exited sermon, sermonary, <laughs> seminary, when I exited seminary, I thought I knew. I thought I understood. Beloved, we do not understand. We know about this much of who he is. If he was to enter this room, you would all fall on the ground screaming and go kill me because I don't deserve to be in front of him. This is what all the prophets have done when they have seen God in a vision. This is what John does when he sees the revelation in Revelation. Our God is beyond. He is better. That's why the first song today, I was just like, you are better than anything. And when a people believe that God is better than anything, sin can't hold them, their past can't hold them, shame doesn't hold them, they run boldly into the throne room of grace when we believe he's better. Let me just lay this, I'm going to lay this on thick and then we'll lay on this thing. In John chapter 8, Jesus says a very important statement, one of his I am statements. He's fighting the Pharisees because that's what Jesus does. And it goes like this. Verse 54, if you're in your Bibles. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. 
but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, if you don't understand what happened, Jesus just said, before Abraham was, I existed. I know Abraham, is what he said. I had lunch with that dude. Abraham longed, Jesus says, for the day that you were experiencing, Pharisees. He longed for my day, not the other way around. And so they, they did right by the Bible. They traced their heritage back to Abraham, but they missed the promises and therefore missed Jesus. Jesus says, I am Yahweh in the flesh. Like the burning bush, Jesus. Joshua, when he sees the angel of the Lord outside Jericho, Jesus. In the beginning of all things, before there is anything, Jesus. This is why Colossians says he holds all things together by the word of his mouth. This is our Jesus. This is the one that we serve. This is the one that we say saves. He is not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral figure. He is God in the flesh and therefore mighty to save. I'll go more. Isaiah chapter 40, I just want your mind to fold on itself. I want you to feel low and humbled, but also like, we get to know him. Isaiah 40, verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? The answer to all his questions is God. So if you hold your hand out, they used to measure like this. And the Bible just said God measures the, the earth with his hand. How great is our God? How amazing and beyond measure. And hear me, that's not poetry. That's not poetry. That's him testifying to what he can't understand and praising God for the fact that if God does this with the earth when he comes to a man, wow! And so if we could just restore wonder in our heart, we are dealing with an everlasting God who has always been. Always been. No one gave him anything. You understand that? No one gave him anything and no one can take anything away from him. Why? Because the moment that he is given something, you got to call that person God. I'll give you one more and then we'll land. Psalm 113.5. This is the NIV, by the way. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? So get, this, get, get God in your mind. Picture what you think. The Bible just said God has to like do this to look at our galaxy. God's got to do this to see our Milky Way. God's got to get down. God's got to humble himself because he's so mighty, holy, and big that that's what it takes. Well, things are going good. Okay, right? This is God. And if you start to apply that to you, he 
humbled himself, he got down low and became a man and died on a cross so he could get low, look you in the eye, and go, I want to transform you by an everlasting love. I want to take you out of what crushed Adam. I want to fulfill my promise to Abraham. I want to do everything I told David I would do and all the prophets promised. I am the savior of the world. God stooped. And I believe he's here today to look you in the eyes and go, I have an everlasting love that wants to transform your heart and life. I have the power because I'm God eternal to transform the darkest sin and the worst past into something beautiful. This is our God. And so hear me. One who is uncreated loves us with an everlasting love. The uncreated one has declared love over his adopted sons and daughters forever. This is why Romans is like, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing is the answer. Demons can't. Satan can't. Your own stupidity can't. My stupidity can't. Why? Because he's the eternal God that goes all the way back that way and all the way back that way. He has the power. He has the mercy. He's in control. He has the dominion. He's holy. He's the one that made it possible. And if he did all the work, you can't stop him. He is an ever, everlasting mercy, everlasting father, everlasting father is what we get to call him. You get to call that God, the one we can't get our mind around, father. And that should humble us, but also like us. So let's talk about you and how that God wants to enter your, your family line, your genealogy. What's yours like? What's your family line like? And some of you are like, well, dad was, and then grandpa, and then you kind of fade off because you don't know. That's fine. What do you hope your family line will be like? If you have kids, what do you hope for them? That, this is, these are our family lines. These are the things that make us us. And what's your past like? Some of you, you probably had pretty crummy earthly dads, some of you. Some of you probably had really good earthly dads. Some of you were like, I like my mom better. No kidding. Most people do. Anybody have some dark spots back there? Anybody? Anybody got some dark spots like right now? So before we talk about yours some more and how I think God wants to fix that, I'm going to show and tell you mine. So my dad's name's Bob. My grandpa's name was Fred. And I want to show them to you. You're like, is he about to raise somebody from the dead? No. This is my grandpa Fred. There he is. I keep this on my basement wall because I think it's hilarious, okay, <laughs> that a man would do this. And he, I was told he made this picture possible and then framed it in a, just an extravagant little frame. And so I keep it in my basement to remind me. Uh, we'll just keep old Fred right there. So what I've been told about my grandpa Fred, um, not to disparage the dead, but he was something of a butthead. Um, he was a womanizer abusive, alcoholic, loved drink, and loved women. Also a little bit narcissistic. That's the family that my dad was born into. So my dad has told me stories of his dad hitting him, his dad teaching him how to drink, 
his dad teaching him how to love women. And so when my dad got married to my mom, I, I was already in the picture. They were not married. And my dad loved women, and he loved alcohol. That was his life. But then something happened. My dad met Jesus. Jesus called my dad, showed him that life is not all about how much you can bench, how much you can drink, and how many women you can bed. Life is about knowing the one that created you. And still to this day, I remember he, he would wear a gold chain that had a cross on it. And in that one decision, my dad changed my life, my kids' lives, because I don't come from good stock. I come from womanizers and abusers and drunks. And I can go on the other side of the family, family and they're all hillbillies and moonshiners. So like, grandma and grandpa. Uh, from the hollers in Kentucky. That's where they're from. Jesus takes all of that and he goes, no, I make new things. And now I am in the, I'm one of the first part of the generations. My kids will not know a life that loves women and loves alcohol. They won't. I'm a pastor now when I have no right to be some days. You're like, what? That's not a confession. That's just, what can God do in you? What's God want to do with your past? Don't let dad or granddad define what God says you are. Don't let your current sin define who God is and what he can do and who you are. What happens when the God of eternity fills a life? What happens when Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, omnipotent, all-powerful, holy one goes, I'm taking your sin now. What replaces it? Righteousness, beauty, power, light, resurrection. I believe this morning you will have to respond to God. He, like, he's proven it. From eternity past, the Bible says that he wanted to pour his love on us. He proved it on the cross. He's waiting. God is waiting. God desires you. God delights in you. God wants you. He showed it on the cross. And some of us were just sitting back and going, oh, my family's such a mess. God changes dead families. Some of you are going, I just can't stop drinking, sleeping, looking at porn. Jesus breaks every chain. So I want to end today uh, with a challenge and reading scripture over you. Um, I think so many of us, and this is why I want to get God big, and I heard this the other day, we, we treat God like a middle class working dad. No, if you're a middle class working dad, which is probably a lot of you, I love you. God bless you. You work hard. You want to love your family. There's just not a lot of energy left. That's not God. That's not how he is. He's not a middle class working dad trying to love and manage 7 billion people. He's not fretting going, oh, oh my God, I just don't have enough resources. He has all the resources. Stop treating God like he's unable, like he's a middle-class working dad. that does, like He works hard, bless him, oh, he supplies for the family, but he's not going to have much more after that. He has everything after that. 
So what I want you to do is I want you to respond how you see fit, but I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6. And I'm going to read it out of something I never do. I'm going to read the message to you. Dun, dun, dun. I don't hate, I'm not hating on the message. I just don't usually use it. But I, if you want to close your eyes and hear the word of the Lord, the band's going to come up and we're going to respond. Some of you will need to get out of your seat and lay your life on the, on the altar and go, God, I want the eternal, holy, good God in the name of Jesus Christ to fill me. I want him to heal every wound my earthly dad did. I want him to take every sinful impulse and fill me with the righteousness of God. That is what God does. And so the prayer teams will be up here. And maybe you need to say to them, I want to be healed from my past. They would love to pray for you. Maybe you're like, I have this sin. Confess it and let it be broken in your life. Past that, we're going to worship till no one's left in the room. We're going to respond to the Lord. We're going to yell about his love. We're going to rejoice in his goodness, that he is that high, that powerful, that good, that he saw it fit to love us. So if you want, close your eyes. You just want to hear it. Ephesians chapter 1, in the message. How blessed is God. And what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and he takes us up to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind. He had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. So, Father, I thank you for your lavish love poured out. And that's what I pray would remain in this room. Your love. Your love would lead us to repentance. Your love would lead us to joyful dancing and singing and shouting for praise of the God of our, our Father. Like, thank you, God, for your goodness. Father, would you come in? Would you move in this room? Would you shake hearts? Break every lie of the evil one and glorify your great name in our midst. Come be in our midst. I pray for the hearts to respond, God, that we would respond to your word. We'd respond to who you are, not who we are. church to sit there as long as you need. God can touch you right there in your seat. Just invite him to fill you, like to fill your heart, to take away your sin, to redeem your past. And if a prayer team member can pray for you, they would love to. I mean it. From this point on, we're just responding to the love of God made manifest in Jesus. Feel free to stay as long or as little as you want. Let's worship Jesus. Thank you for tuning into the message today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged by the gospel. If you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com. We love you. We're praying for you. Have a great week. God bless.